you'll join me one more time in a word of prayer before we get started. Father, uh, thank you that you are a gracious God, for we are a sinful people. And Lord, we know that if you do not build the house, the workers labor in vain. So we ask your blessing on this service, not because of our righteousness or strength, but on you, who have great and abundant mercy onto your people, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The proper approach to something is, is often really telling. Uh, athletes preparing to do something physically challenging often are, are extremely intentional and focused in how they approach that task. Long jumpers typically start 100 feet back from where they want to launch from to gain momentum. Rock climbers are deliberate with every hand and foothold to make sure they don't fall. How they approach each task says a lot about two things. First, it says a lot about the task before them, how difficult is the rock climb, how far they want to jump. But maybe more than that, it says a lot about their self-perception. You see, the, the one who has an accurate perception of self, who knows what they're truly capable of, succeeds in the task. The one who does not have an accurate perception of self, overestimating their strength, often then fails. And in a similar way, how human beings approach God is very telling to if they have an accurate perception of God and if they have an accurate perception of self. Even the atheist who denies that God exists is making a statement about God and self. He is saying God is a liar and does not exist, and I myself know the truth. On a much smaller scale, how each person talks about God, thinks about God, or takes seriously the word of God is a reflection of who they think they are, what their identity is before the Lord. So I would put forward to you today from the text that having an accurate self-perception about who we are before the Lord will determine our entire life. Having an accurate self-perception about who we are before the Lord will determine our entire life. Every single person believes some truth about themselves. That belief can stem from what other people say about them, what they feel, but at the end of the day, it's either objectively true or it's objectively false. Someone who has never jumped farther than over a puddle but calls themselves an Olympic long jumper has an objectively false self-perception. A belief that is actually true about ourselves, rooted in God's word, it is what determines everything in our lives. And so as we jump into the text, uh, Luke provides us the lens through which we are to interpret the parable here in verse 9. He, he sets it before us in a way so that we can begin with the end in mind and that we know what is Jesus trying to teach beforehand. So in verse 9, we read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Both the purpose and the audience of the parable are laid out for us here. The purpose is to show the evil and folly of self-righteousness. Now, this idea of righteousness is talked about so much in the church, read in scripture, to a point where we can almost read it and move past it without properly understanding what righteousness is. At a high level, righteousness is God. God's perfection, his essence, his character is the definition of righteousness. And so the standard of true righteousness is God himself. 
And so when we ask the question of how can man be righteous before the Lord, we are asking, how can one obtain the actual righteousness of God? How can man meet the standard of God's righteousness? And so the one that thinks that they themselves are righteous, the self-righteous person, would be anyone who believes, consciously or unconsciously, that their behavior or lifestyle merits the righteousness of God. In essence, anytime someone thinks that they're viewed higher by God because of a deed, thought, or feeling, they are performing self-righteousness. So Jesus' purpose here is to not only tear down that idea, but also to provide the path to true righteousness. And so with this in mind, we have two men put before us. The Pharisee, a seemingly pious man respected by the community, and the tax collector, a man hated by the Jewish people because he has betrayed their nation to Rome, and he himself is greedy and selfish. At this point in Luke's gospel, though, we, we actually aren't super surprised by such a contrast. In chapter 10, uh, Jesus contrasted the Levites and the priests with the Good Samaritan. In chapter 14, he contrasted the Pharisees with the crippled, the blind, the lame. In chapter 15, he contrasted the eldest son, who's representing the religious leaders, with the prodigal son. So we're, we're used to this. And so if you're going to make an educated guess, you could probably guess which party is going to be commended. In every single one of these contrasts, the less respected, the less religious person is elevated as the example to follow, while the Pharisee, the religious leader, they are deemed hypocrites. Don't follow them. And this trend will continue in this parable, as we'll see in a second. However, we have to be careful to avoid falling into the pitfall of seeing this pattern and thinking, oh, Jesus is just warning the Pharisees about legalism and telling them that they should be more like the tax collector. We're quick to assume in any parable involving the Pharisees that they're the true audience, and as long as we don't try and earn our own salvation, that's the extent of the message that we ourselves can receive. And yes, that is a, the message, that the audience, there could be Pharisees in the crowd listening to Jesus, but the audience is a bit more expansive than that. It addresses those who think that sin is not that big of a deal, that no one is really that unworthy before God. The biggest sin in our culture is to tell someone that they are a sinner and that we just need to accept everyone exactly how they are. And this parable confronts that idea head on. Additionally, the intended audience is any religious person hearing or reading this, because God knows that self-righteousness is a tendency of the religious. I remember in high school basketball, when we would uh, watch film after each game, our coach would call out tendencies he saw in us, mostly bad ones. Um, he had seen us over the summer, in practice, in other games, make the same mistake time after time. And so when it came up in game film, he made sure to call it out. Hey, you always go right when you drive to the basket. Or you pick up your dribble way too early. Or if you were me, you just have a tendency of being bad at defense. And so he knew us. He was able to easily spot our tendencies. And so he called them out. Likewise, Jesus knows that self-righteousness is a tendency for religious people, especially for those of us who grew up in the church. However, because we appropriately love the Reformation's cry of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, we are quick to believe that self-righteous thoughts are beyond us. We would never believe that you could earn your salvation, right? 
However, acknowledging that we all have tendency for forms and, and shades of self-righteousness, feeling like we are more favorable or favored by God because we read our Bible one extra day that week, as an example, having that perspective that we have those tendencies helps us read and listen to this parable with a spirit of openness, not dismissiveness. Specifically, we see in verse 10 that the way Christ is going to talk about this tendency, though, is through prayer. The two men went up into the temple to pray. In other words, how do the prayers of these two men reveal their self-perception? How they approach God will show what they believe about God and their own righteousness. So starting with the Pharisee, then, we read in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Standing alone in the temple, probably in view and earshot of all to see and hear, this religious man, this Pharisee, comes before God extremely confidently. And he, the poster child of self-righteousness, shows us a couple things in his prayer. First of all, it's, it's all about himself. Notice he uses the word I five different times in his prayer. I am not like these other men. I tithe. I fast. I have it together, in a sense. His approach to God is based on the belief that his, he is righteous and that he is in right standing before the Lord because of his spiritual deeds. And his confidence has a foundation rooted in all that he has done to obey and serve God. He's going above the law and fasting twice a week. He's giving tithes of all he gets. He's not committing outward sins. So looking at himself, he therefore arrogantly and confidently approaches the Lord. The result is, though, that he is arrogant towards others. In verse 9, Luke made clear that all who trust in themselves will treat others with contempt. The religious man feels superior. He is better than all the sinners he listed, especially the tax collector. And so there's a deep level of disdain and harshness towards the sin of other people because they are, in his view, inferior to him. For the person who measures himself by the goodness of their own behavior, those will be the only two options, superiority or inferiority. They will look down on others because they feel spiritually superior to them, or they will envy others because they feel spiritually inferior to them. And those two options are timeless truths. Feeling superior to others spiritually will lead to pride in our walk. Or feeling inferior, envying them, wishing we were more like them, will lead to despair because we think we will never measure up to their standards. So Christian, you can ask yourself, does there seem to be a constant vacillation or back and forth between pride and despair in your Christian walk? If so, spiritual comparison might be gripping your heart. I would add on to this, though, that we can see that the worldview of the Pharisee is completely horizontal. And what do I mean by that? I mean that his view of himself is completely defined by who he is in comparison to others, as opposed to a vertical worldview, which defines self, others, and all created things in relation to God. The horizontal worldview is all about comparison. Why does he think he's righteous? Because he is not like the other more outwardly sinful men. He is superior in his mind because he doesn't commit the same level of sins that other people do. 
John Calvin has a helpful analogy for this type of thinking in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Using an analogy of our physical ability to see, he writes, If in broad daylight we look down at the ground or attend to things which are round about us, we have no trouble believing our sight is extremely sharp and keen. When, however, we look straight up at the sun, the power that served us so well on earth is dazed and dazzled by so intense a light, forcing us to admit that our ability clearly to see earthly objects is weak and feeble when it comes to gazing at the sun. This is how it is when we try to estimate our spiritual strengths. As long as we do not look beyond Earth's horizons, we are perfectly content with our own righteousness. We flatter and congratulate ourselves and are not far from thinking we are demigods. This is what it means to be self-righteous, to play the comparison game, defining ourselves by how we ladder up to those around us and concluding that we have, in fact, come out on top. Looking around the world and others and congratulating on ourselves on our great ability to see, not realizing that if we looked up just for one second and gazed at something truly powerful, all our supposed merit and self-ability would be as nothing. In direct contrast, though, to the Pharisee stands the tax collector. Picking up where we left off in verse 13, we read, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Going up to the temple to pray with the scent of burnt offerings on behalf of the sins of the people, filling his nostrils, hearing the pious and confident prayer of the Pharisee, it's not hard to imagine the guilt this tax collector had as he prepares this short prayer. This man knows he is not righteous before the Lord. He knows what he has done, who he truly is, and that he has not met the holy requirements of God's law. There's no blind self-confidence with him. So notice, notice his approach. Before he even prays, he stands far off. Jewish culture was defined by the unclean and the clean. The unclean must be kept from the clean, because the unclean always makes what is clean dirty. Said differently, the unholy and defiled cannot touch the holy. As one got closer and closer to the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt, more holiness was required. Gentiles dropped off. Non-Levites dropped off. Only the priests then could go further. Then, not even the priests, but only the high priests, and that but once a year on the Day of Atonement. And this wasn't some rabbinical tradition or man-made Thing. This was instituted by God to communicate to the people, I am holy and you are not. That unholiness, filth, cannot enter the presence of the Lord. He cannot allow sin into his presence. So therefore, the tax collector stands far off. He knows he's not clean. He actually has a very accurate view of self. He's defiled and not worthy to draw near to the Lord. And he has an accurate view of God as well. God will not let evildoers into his presence. So before he prays, he physically positions himself in a way that reflects his spiritual position. A sinner, as we will see before holy God. Furthermore, he's unable to even lift up his eyes to heaven. This is a posture of intense guilt over sin. Ezra reflects something similar to this as he intercedes on behalf of God's people when they intermarry with the nations around them. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. 
This is similar to a childhood experience I'm sure many of you had when you were caught disobeying your parents. I remember once there was a day when I noticed a nice $20 bill in front of my brother's chair and decided it would be appropriate for me to take it. Now, in a household with only two children, and this being my brother's $20 bill, my parents had a pretty limited set of suspects to interrogate. So when they confronted me on it, I remember the shame, the guilt. I didn't want to look them in the eye, look at their face. I knew I was guilty. There's nothing I could do to try and argue otherwise. Such is the position of the tax collector. He knows he is guilty. The innocent man really has no need for shame. The innocent man can look others straight in the face, straight in the eyes, but those who are guilty cannot. So he's standing far off. He's not even lifting his eyes to heaven. And he's also beating his breast. This is a mourning ritual. Seen biblically done by women at funerals as they weep over the death of a loved one. This is intense sorrow. See, the tax collector hates his sin. This is, as Paul says, godly grief over the evil of his heart. As he reflects on his inability to to do right and consistent doing of what is wrong, there is pain and anger. This is similar to when the Christian wails with tears over their failure to follow God's law, when they reflect with pain on the sin they have committed time and time again. The tax collector is in agony over the state of his soul. And again, we see quite clearly that his physical posture reflects his spiritual condition. And that condition is explained explicitly in his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, make atonement for me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. The tax collector is a better theologian than the religious man because he defines himself vertically by who God is and who he is in relation to God, not in relation to man. See, he actually follows in the footsteps of all the holy men of old who testified to the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. This is most clearly seen with Isaiah, who beholds the Lord sitting enthroned in the heavens with angels crying out, holy, 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 and the foundations of the earth shaking at the presence of the Lord. And how does Isaiah respond? He is undone. He, he, he says, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips who dwells with a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the proper response and posture of every single man and woman as they draw near to the Lord. He is holy, we are not. And this is not simply because we do actions that are unholy. It is because our very nature is unholy. Notice that the tax collector and Isaiah do not attribute their uncleanness to what they have done by, but by who they are. The tax collector specifically does not cry for forgiveness because he has sinned, but because he is a sinner. He's testifying that he needs mercy because at the core of his being, he knows he is unclean before the Lord. As I said, the tax collector views himself through a vertical or God-centered lens. Who he is is not rooted in comparison, but who he is is rooted in his righteousness before a perfectly righteous God. Going back to Calvin's analogy from earlier, describing the difference between looking around horizontally or looking up at the sun to evaluate the strength of our eyesight, Calvin concludes with this latter vertical approach. He says, If, however, we turn our thoughts towards the Lord and realize how consummate is his righteousness, which is the standard to which we must conform, what we once took to be righteousness will appear foul and utterly evil. 
Indeed, what we reckon to be perfectly blameless in us will never match the purity to be found in God. Now, it must be made clear this isn't a call to beat oneself up or to hate yourself. It is simply a call to have an accurate self-perception. Every single person on this earth is by nature, apart from the grace of God, a sinner. Our very beings, therefore all we do, say, or think, or love, have been marred by sin, and there can be no self-righteousness before the Lord. So when we think of the sinner's prayer, as it is commonly put, this prayer, this desperate plea, is what we must think of. Praying for salvation is not accepting Jesus into your heart, or repeating the prayer of a pastor from a pulpit when one was a teenager, and then being good the rest of your life. Those types of prayers are actually dangerous because they can give the people false ideas that they are saved, false assurance, and then they just go and live the rest of their life however they want it. No, the true sinner's prayer is the humble and lifelong acknowledgement of a need for mercy and forgiveness from God. One might ask, however, why, why is this commended? This seems heavy. Why, why is Jesus teaching that this is good? It is good because mankind's greatest need, reconciliation between them and God, is achieved through this kind of approach to God. We read in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, this sinner, is shown to be justified and the religious man is not Jesus is teaching where true righteousness comes from, not from self, but from God. The Pharisee tried to find righteousness horizontally, through horizontal comparison to other people. His reward, therefore, is simply the respect and honor he thinks he gets from other people, and his status before God remains unchanged. The tax collector, however, gets his righteousness from the Lord, vertically. And since he views himself vertically in relation to God, his reward is vertical, true reconciliation with the Lord. That word reconciliation is associated with, with peace being made between two parties. God, as, as Lord and King, offers us, as rebels, the path to true peace instead of war. However, as the one who is in complete control of the peace being offered, he has decreed that there is only one way to be restored to right relationship with him. When there is unconditional surrender in warfare, the victorious party gets to set every single term of the surrender. So it is with us and the Lord. And his terms are that ones repent and believe the good news. That first piece, true repentance over sin, is mandatory. As one Puritan has put it, no one will enter heaven unbruised. No one will enter heaven without being brought low because of their sin and confessing that they are not worthy of God's favor. However, we know that all bruised people will be healed people. As Hosea says, he has torn us that he will heal us. He has struck us down in order to bind us up again. The very process of being bruised and brought low is the means by which God restores us. If this is true, we can't move on before pointing out what this shows us about our Lord. He delights to forgive sinners. He is teaching his listeners and us as readers how to be restored to right relationship with the Father. He's commending it, laying it before us, showing us the clear path. This is a call. All who are weary, broken over their sin, come to the Lord and he will forgive you. That is his character. That is who 
he is. He will welcome you, all who call on his name, crying out that they too are a sinner. He will by no means turn away. And we tend to miss this this glorious truth about the nature of our God because we go into these parables thinking one party will be condemned by the Lord and the other party will be commended and brought in. But we miss the fact that neither party deserves to be saved. God was not required to forgive or justify either the tax collector or the Pharisee. We should therefore be in awe that the Lord would save even one of them and provide the same path to forgiveness for us as well. And so for believers, seeing Christ's delight in forgiving and saving sinners should remind us afresh that he loves us and is quick to forgive us. God does not kindly offer justification to those that don't know him and then withhold the assurance of forgiveness from his own people. No, no, we have a faithful high priest who when we come to him is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can approach the Lord with the same approach as the tax collector and expect the same result day after day, year after year, until glory. There's no sin too shameful that a believer cannot go to Christ enthroned on the true mercy seat and be cleansed of. With the text laid before us then, we can go back to our statement at the front end. An accurate self-perception of who you are before God will determine your entire life. I would propose that there are three self-perceptions or three ways for humans to think of themselves before the Lord. Three self-identities, if you may. A worldly identity, a biblical identity, and a new identity. A worldly identity, a biblical identity, and a new identity. And we'll spend the rest of time walking through each of these three. So first, the the worldly identity. Um, There's a well-known joke that goes something like, two campers awake to find a grizzly bear rampaging through their campsite. And uh, the first camper freaks out but looks to the second, and the second is calmly putting on his running shoes. And the first camper says, why are you doing that? You'll never outrun the bear. And the second camper says, I don't need to outrun the bear, I just need to outrun you. That's how the joke goes. (laughs) But such is the philosophy of the world. As we talked about a horizontal view in which everything is defined by relation to others, so does the world operate. The world teaches that as long as you can find another person that is worse than you or less talented, you're fine. Their gospel, their good news, is that as long as you are not a murderer, a rapist, or an evil dictator, you are a good person. The chief goal isn't to gain acceptance with a holy God, but to learn to accept and celebrate yourself. All humanity knows that we are not perfect, that there's something wrong with the human soul. This explains the epidemic of depression and suicidal thoughts in young kids and adults. People know there's a problem. But instead of seeing the problem as an issue of sin before a holy God, they see it as a problem of self-worth. If you just loved yourself more, accepted yourself more, you would be happy. Whether that be through comparison to others or just self-acceptance, the stated or unstated belief is that God really just wants you to discover the real you and fully live out whatever kind of lifestyle you want to live out. As long as you're happy with yourself, God is happy with you. And this is the worldly, self-righteous approach. Because like I said, it's, obviously, it's obvious that there is a problem. We are broken and people know it. But looking for an answer to that problem in self or relative to others cannot work. It can't work quite simply because a human cannot change their heart. 
Scripture uses a variety of analogies to help drive this point home. Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? Can a leopard change his spots? Can anyone enter again into their mother's womb? The answer is a resounding and clear no. Looking better than others or learning how to fully express yourself is not the path to a healthy identity. These things cannot actually alter who people are internally and before the Lord. And while the faithful church member might not fall for the lie that who we are can be defined in such fleshly ways, we have to remember that this can creep into the church in different manners because our tendency is self-righteousness. Instead of letting God through his word define us, we can be prone to look to other avenues to figure out who we are. One of the problems, however, with spotting self-righteousness in the church is that it often appears very pious. The religious man fasted and gave a tenth of all that he had to the Lord. Those are two objectively good things. Similarly, spiritual disciplines, biblical and theological knowledge, holiness, obedience, serving the church are objectively good. So then how do we tell if this is an issue? Well, just as Christ used the prayers of these two men to make his point about self-righteousness, we too can use our prayer lives to diagnose the problem. A clear starting place is simply prayerlessness. The one who does not pray, though he may not think it consciously, is testifying that he does not need the Lord. The inner belief of self-sufficiency that we are all tempted to results in prayer falling by the wayside. Logically, why would we ask for help if we don't believe we need it? Worldly thinking, where self is God, is antithetical to prayer. However, I think it is much more often the pray, play, much more often the case that the church prays, but prays with gaps. There are things missing in our prayer lives that reflect an inner conviction that we are strong in and of ourselves. And what I mean by this, uh, I'll go through a couple examples of, of worldly thinking in our prayer lives. Prayers of confession become a gap because we're tempted to define ourselves by how we ladder up to others. As long as our sins aren't noticed or don't seem to be as bad, we don't feel the need to confess. We evaluate ourselves based on the rough average level of holiness of the Christians around us. If we can convince ourselves that we are meeting that rough average and that there are still those under us in our mind who are less holy, we don't confess because the inward sins of our heart don't seem that important. The weight of sin is reduced because righteousness is viewed, again, horizontally, not vertically. And therefore, we are slow to come to the Lord in prayer. Another example is prayers of thankfulness tend to be a gap. The Orthodox Christian would confirm that the whole earth is the Lord's, every single ounce, every single inch. And so therefore, anything good we receive is a gift from him to be received with thanksgiving and enjoyment. More importantly, the Orthodox Christian would say that we don't deserve anything from the Lord. We don't deserve his kindness. And so any spiritual blessing, foremost our salvation, is a tremendous gift. Any growth in sanctification is an ongoing miracle of his grace to us through Christ. However, it is all too easily to, to functionally fail to adhere to this worldview. Instead of giving God proper thanks for material and spiritual blessings, we view them almost as, as givens, as wages. As Paul says to the Corinthians, we boast as if these things were earned through our piety and self-discipline. We come to expect God's blessing 
to us because we feel like we have earned it. The higher view we have of our own self-sufficiency, the lower view we're going to have of God's grace, and that will naturally lead to thankless prayers. Finally, this worldly identity leads to an absence of confident prayers rooted in the assurance of our salvation. As a loving father, God wants his people to know that they are loved and that they will spend eternity with him. Yet far too often, we struggle with assurance because our confidence is not based on the righteousness of Christ, but on our own righteousness. And this stays hidden in the shadows when things are apparently going well, but when sin reveals itself, when one fails to adhere to God's law, the Christian can easily crumble like a building that loses its foundation. And it's no wonder that when we try and be confident in our own righteousness, to be confident in God's love for us, we fall apart. Whereas Christ was perfectly obedient, we break his law every day. Whereas Christ was constant, we change every minute. Whereas Christ said, thy will be done, we say, my will be done. Nothing will hinder our peace and confidence in this life more than thinking we somehow gain security with the Lord by what we do. So that's option one, a worldly identity. Um, if we have shown that to be foolish, I would propose we look to option two for hope. In contrast to the horizontal perspective, the Bible first and foremost words, uh, roots our worldview in God being the authority above all his creation. As the creator, he has the right to do whatever he pleases with the things that he has made, including defining who we are as humans. Contrary to the world, the Christian starts with God in order to have an accurate knowledge of self. We must first acknowledge that the Bible places more value and worth on human beings than any other religion or philosophy. See, in the garden, God made Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness. They were the crown jewel of his creation. This placed them in a position distinct from every other created being or thing. They alone were filled with morality. They alone could be in true relationship with the Lord. They alone were given dominion over God's creation to exercise and to have authority over. They were, as Psalm 8 says, crowned with glory and honor. Each and every human, therefore, is intrinsically valuable and precious. However, we see from the fall in Genesis 3 and onwards that sin has corrupted the human race. We have been tarnished, defiled, and evil has infused all of what we do and who we are. Humanity is like a once beautiful painting that has been scratched, treated poorly, and painted over in parts. One can tell that it was once a masterpiece, but it has been warped almost beyond recognition. So while still valuable, our standing before God has been radically altered because of sin. As we said, humanity no longer has peace with God, but is at war with him. And the Bible makes clear that this broken relationship now defines us in weighty ways. Think of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, only looking at, at three specific types of offerings for sin. There's the burnt offering, which was offered for the overall sinfulness of the people. There's the sin offering, meant to be offered for every single individual sin that was committed. And then there was the guilt offering, which was a form of the sin offering meant to be offered after there were sins committed that required reparations or money to be paid back. Many different offerings to be offered at many different times for many different types of sins. Why all these offerings? Well, for one, the Lord is communicating to his people that there is a problem. 
the people standing before him is not healthy. It is marred by sin. All these offerings, perhaps being offered around the clock, the smell of blood, seeing the animals constantly going into the temple would have served as a constant reminder to the people that God is holy and they are not holy. And this is the correct place to start if one is to consider who we truly are before God. We are not defined by how we feel or how we compare to others, but by God. And this plays out once again in how we approach God in prayer. The tax collector believed that he was truly a sinner, the sinner, in fact, coming before the Lord within a, a posture of lowliness and humility. He doesn't boast or have confidence in anything he has done, but throws himself at the mercy of God. Far beyond a mere intellectual acknowledgement, though, this goes deeper. This is a true conviction over that reality. And this plays out in how he prays. And so, Christian, does your prayer life reflect this biblical identity? Is there a desperate dependence on the righteousness of God that only he can give? This could be as simple as developing a daily habit of confessing your sins before the Lord, in which you get down on your knees, confess what you have left undone, what should have been done, and what you have done that should not have been done. See, a habit such as confession is the best defense against self-righteousness, and it is the best offense to how we should think about ourselves. See, it acknowledges that God has all authority and all rights, and he is to come, and we are to come before him with a biblical fear. It makes us intentional, not flippant in our prayers, because we are reminded that we are created and he is uncreated. And it makes us remind ourselves of the cross, both the cost of our unrighteousness and, as we'll see in a moment, the free gift of the righteousness of Christ that is freely offered to us. And having this proper view of ourselves should actually drive us to God, not away from him. The tax collector, in all his sin, displays remarkable faith by going to God. There is an unwritten assumption that though he is a very great sinner, God is a very great Savior who is willing to forgive him. And so instead of letting our sin keep us from communion with God, our sin should actually drive us to the Lord because we know that he is gracious and will forgive us. This brings us to our uh, third and final point. We've talked about having a worldly and biblical, biblical identity, but now we're going to talk about a new identity. See, Jesus says that the tax collector goes home justified or counted righteous before the Lord. The very fact that he acknowledged that he is a sinner before God and turned to the Lord for mercy is what leads him to be declared right in the sight of God. This new identity, an identity of right standing, actually can only come through having a biblical identity first. It's a one-two punch. It's hard for us as humans to submit to God's word and let him define us. Humbling self and acknowledging that God has decreed our identity can seem daunting. But the joy of this reality is that if we accept God's decree that we are sinners, we will receive God's decree that we are no longer sinners, but saints. See, when we are justified through faith in Christ, there's a seismic shift in who we are. Before, we were truly sinners before the Lord. But now we are made new. We are saints. We are sons. We are a holy priesthood, a treasured possession. If you recall, humanity is like a defiled masterpiece. Yet this isn't a surprise to God. It has always been his plan to restore us and to recreate us into the image of his son. 
A great restorer of art brings a painting back to the beauty of its original design. The art restorer with care and patience takes the dirt and dust off. It can even repair canvas holes and tears. It repaints where paint has faded. If you've ever seen before and after pictures of this, it really is incredible. Uh, the, the pictures look like two different paintings. You can tell that the old one used to look incredible, but it, it's, it's marred, it's disfigured. And yet, after the art restorer works on it, you now understand why it is labeled a masterpiece. So it is with us as God's people. He's the master restorer who gives us a new identity in place of the old. This comes, however, not through new paint being applied, but through Christ actually switching places with us. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took on our identity as a sinner before the Lord and the wrath that comes with that. And he did so that we could become the righteousness of God. We receive Christ's identity. All the blessings, all the security, all the assurance that comes along with it. Yes, as sinners, we'll struggle against the flesh for the rest of our lives. But Christ, not our sin, is now the foundational reality of who we are. So when we approach the Lord in prayer, we enter with extreme humility and lowliness, and we exit with extreme confidence. We come to him with biblical fear, acknowledging that he is holy and we are not, and yet we have to leave with the confidence that we are truly forgiven. It is a both and, not an either or, and we have to hold that balance in our prayer life. Practically, this means that Christians should not miss an opportunity to confess our sins before the Lord. We all love Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him. But we have to ask ourselves, how is he working our sin for our good? How is that good? How is he sovereignly ordaining that even our sin is for our benefit? Well, an aspect of that is that every time we sin and go to the Lord, we are reminded afresh of his incredible grace. And that we go to him and marvel that he would forgive us yet again when we committed the exact same sin we said we would never commit. And yet he forgives us. That is how he works all things for our good, even when we sin. So don't waste your sin, Christian. Run to the Lord and confess and don't leave until you're secure in his love for you. The tax collector left the temple justified. So don't leave your time in prayer until you are confident that you are forgiven through Christ. So you must think of yourself biblically. You must think of yourself biblically. It's not more holy to constantly be in a state of despair over your sin. That is just a form of self-righteousness. We are to trust that what God says about us is actually true, that we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And by, if by the Spirit's power we grow in our trust of that reality, we will never have a bad day because we know that our God is for us and that we are covered with the righteousness of his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you have mercy on us, sinners. We pray that you would not count our iniquities against us. We pray that you would cleanse us of all the evil that we have done and the good that we have failed to do. Lord, our hearts are inclined to self-exalting. Humble us, Lord Jesus, not just in our head, but in our heart as we realize your extreme holiness. 
and our wretchedness. Lord, when you move that into our heart by the Holy Spirit and we believe that reality, we ask that you also impart confidence in us, in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you truly were the sufficient sacrifice for our sins and that we have received your righteousness, Jesus, and that is who we are before you. Lord, give us faith. Have mercy on our weaknesses. Let us go into the rest of our days and weeks truly confessing our sins before you and then being reminded afresh day by day that we are forgiven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.